Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. We're looking at new books in religion, and I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. The book we're discussing today, Religion and the Sciences of Origins, turns the idea of a war between science and religion on its head, offering multiple ways that they interact and even integrate. Focusing on two major issues, the origin of the universe and the origin of species, its author, Kelly James Clark, unravels the many stories and experiments that have led us to where we are today. Dr. Clark is Senior Research Fellow at the Kaufman Interfaith Institute at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and is former Professor of Philosophy at Gordon College and Calvin College. He's also author and co-author of more than 20 volumes, including the recent Abraham's Children and Philosophers Who Believe, which was voted one of Christianity Today's Books of the Year in 1995. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Clark to the program. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking, uh, being that you've written a book on origins, after all, it seems appropriate to begin with your origins. How did you come to study philosophy? Oh, well, I probably have a similar journey to lots of people. Um, I, I think a lot of people get interested in philosophy as undergrads, um, in part because they've, they've gone to college and found challenges to their faith, or maybe they already did in high school. Um, and, and I find this story repeated by quite a few people, atheist and theist alike, who uh, initially um, felt their faith pretty severely challenged by this or that, wanting to go to study philosophy to see what it what it had going for them. Um, and I find people, you know, across the aisle, so to speak, um, retelling that story in various versions. And that that's that was true of my story. I started out. Well, I don't even know what I started out in, but I just slowly gravitated gravitated towards philosophy as an undergrad because uh, I wanted to know what was what was reasonable to believe and what wasn't. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's ideas really, and this book is is chock full of ideas, so it makes a lot of sense. Even though this is a book written for more popular audiences, you can really see that background, I think, coming through. Um, but so, what drew you then to a project about science in particular? I, I've been interested since early on about issues uh, issues in science, how we understand it, what what sorts of claims it makes to reality and how we're supposed to – and then how, how do we fit those in with things that we believe uh, as matters of faith. So my, my dissertation was actually on Richard Swinburne's, uh, I think, kind of quasi-scientific argument for the existence of God that used science-like reasoning and probabilities – but I also, I also looked at J.L. Mackey, who was an atheist, and he used exactly the same kind of quasi-scientific methods. And, you know, it's, it's sort of mathematical. You put probability in there, and it starts to almost look like science. And, and I looked at um, whether or not that was a really helpful way to look at rationality of religious belief. And, and I've had that interest since, uh, since starting in grad school. Right. And, and when you're saying science, I mean, it's sort of this kind of proto-science or it's really history of science. 
Yeah, it's sort of, I say quasi-science. It, it sort of looks like science, and it, it has this kind of math stuff to it. And I, I think a lot of philosophers um, wish they were more science-like. Um, and so, so a lot of philosophy has gotten really highly technical and mathematical and logical. Um, but the fact is, I think, underneath all of the, the technical mathematical stuff, there are just a few basic ideas that are being expressed and they're perennial basic and important ideas, ones that need to be brought out clearly and, and thought about clearly. So does this book then attend to some of those perennial ideas or, or are these ideas things that are maybe not as central to philosophy? Well, I think, so I think most philosophers aren't that interested in science and religion. Mm. Probably most philosophers aren't all that interested in religion, uh, really, at least in, in the Western Academy. Um, and yet the, these issues uh, in the book are issues about um, what can we know? Uh, how do we know? What is science? How do we know what science teaches? My, my book is very pro-science, although, uh, you know, if you ask me and what is science? I don't think we really have a good single definition of it. I think that's interesting to learn from our history. And, uh, and so the term science can sometimes become a sort of sledgehammer that we use against people we think are stupid or, um, you know, backwards or something like that. Uh, and, um, and then there are, you know, in the end, I just, I, I look at whether or not religious belief is still a genuine option given various challenges that, that science has to offer. And I say, well, some some religious beliefs uh, could be, and but some religious beliefs probably aren't. And science does pose a pretty big challenge to certain religious beliefs. Yeah. So what in the books, the many books, as you note, that have been written, maybe not by philosophers, but have been written about sort of evolution and religion, science and religion, what did you see lacking in those books that, that you felt you were able to bring out here? Um. So I, I guess the main thing, I mean, there are a couple of things that my book has that nobody else has. Uh, I don't feel like I say, on some topics, I don't feel like I say all that much that other people haven't discussed. But I don't think any science and religion books that I know of have anything on the origins, the kind of evolutionary origins of religious belief itself, mm. that um, that we we may have been shaped on the Serengeti to in such a way that it's kind of natural for us to form religious beliefs. And um, so cognitive psycho science of religion or cognitive psychology of religion or evolutionary psychology of religion. I don't think they're part of any, um, I guess, recent book on science and religion. I also discuss uh, evolution and morality. What, you know, what's the origins of morality? Does science have a good and uh, competing alternative account of the origin and nature of morality? And, so those are two topics I think don't get discussed at all. And then the other thing is I don't think – I think dis discussions of these sorts aren't really science and religion. They're science and Christianity. And I realized as I'm writing that my book was science and Christianity, um, but I do interfaith work. I work with Muslims and Jews, and I didn't want a book that was just science and Christianity. So I added chapters on Islam and science and uh, and um, Judaism and science, because I thought that the discussion needs to spread out. It isn't just Christianity and science. Science and religion is not just science and Christianity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Although, of course, you do make you know a case for the fact that a lot of that discussion, at least in the context of our our Western uh, European heritage, does put Christianity pit Christianity, um, you know, vis a vis science. So, as as you point out, I mean, although a fair amount of your book looks at that, it does make sense in terms of the current discussions. Um, I actually. There's- just no denying that the hot points of the past hundred years have been science and Christianity. And yeah. it would be, and, and frankly, I don't know anything about Buddhism. I couldn't really write about science and Buddhism or science and Hinduism. And I hope people write those books. I don't mean that to be condescending, but I couldn't write those books. But yeah. uh, adding a chapter in Islam and a chapter in Judaism were more up my alley. I actually, I want to come back to that um, in a bit because I want to hear a bit more about, uh, more specifically about what you found in terms of those faiths and and their views on science. But I thought maybe we could uh, just backtrack for a moment to something you said earlier, which is the fact that sometimes we think about science or we use it, as you said, as a sledgehammer, um, you know, to refer to something that is more modern or smarter or something. Sometimes we think about scientists, as you note in the book, as, you know, guys in white lab coats. So how do you define science in the book? I mean, what, what's sort of a working idea of science that our listeners could take home with them to complicate that a little bit? So, so there are two, two things I point out. One is that almost any way that you try to define science, you're going to leave out um, something that you probably do think is science or something we should think of is science or, or something that at one time we thought was science. Um, so like if we thought Aristotle was a scientist and, you know, he lived tw- roughly 2,500 years ago and we think he, some people call him the father of science, but he didn't do science like we do science. And he didn't, and he didn't have beliefs like his so-called scientific beliefs aren't what we believe, but I think he should be included. I think he belongs in there, and we don't want to just define him out. Um, and the same with Newton, for example. He he spent more time doing alchemy and studying scripture because he thought there were alch- alchemical secrets he thought were included in the Bible, and he, he spent more time studying that. But that was part of his what... Now, here's the term we would use, science. That term wasn't around. That term was invented in the 19th century. He was doing what he would call natural philosophy. He was just trying to understand the world in the broadest possible way. And studying the Bible was an important part of that. Well, he also hoped it would make it rich, his alchemy. He thought he could figure out how to turn lead into gold. Um, but that secret's in this book, of course. If people oh, buy the book, they'll find out. That. But so we... <laughs> We, we just pick out the parts that we like of Newton. We call those science, you know, the law of universal gravitation and Newton's optics and stuff like that. And then we leave out all the stuff we don't like. And we say the stuff we like, that's science. The stuff we don't like, that's just superstition. But there's, there's no way we can define it and then keep Newton in there and not, not sort, of, sort of keep alchemy. Anyway, in the end, what I do is just say probably the best we can do I say that science does its best to come up with laws and theories, um, laws and theories that sometimes make predictions. And then we try to figure out um, if those predictions um, are realized. And if they are, then there's some confirmation for the law or theory. And if they're not, then they're not. Now, that's a really rough and ready thing because a lot of science, especially the historical sciences, don't make predictions. 
They're about things that happened a long time ago. And so you have to adjust it. But in the end, I just say, what I'm going to talk about is what people today say is uh, something that science tells us. For example, that our um, sun is at the center of our solar system and the earth isn't. So if we think that, and then I just, I, I think there's similar problems trying to define religion. I just say, well, just, we'll just take what particular people say their religion is and compare that to what people in our day and age say science is. And so I don't really come up with any compelling uh, definitions, but still we can get our handle on what some people say science is and what some people say religion is and see how those two things might be related. Yeah, and and certainly, I mean, even as you were just saying, you know, the idea of science as a field that makes predictions, that in and of itself, I think, is sometimes maybe lost on general audiences who are using science as, as you said, as that sledgehammer to um, say that things are inevitably uh, the way that science seems to portray them. So that that's an, a good point. Um, so you note, of course, and, and you've already been pointing this out, that the relationship between science and religion is a lot more complex, a lot more fraught um, than, than people often give it credit for. It's not religion versus science. There's a complexity there. Um, you note that often there's three positions um, that we can sort of see science and religion um, either in conflict, um, in separation, or in integration. I was wondering if... Um, you could talk specifically about the integration of science and religion, which I feel might be least familiar to some of our listeners. Yeah. So just quickly, I think that some people say there are five ways science and religion can be related. Some eight, some 13. It just seemed they're, they all boil down to versions of these three. And for simplicity sake, it seemed to me th- three was enough for, for us to keep thinking about. And the standard one, is conflict or battle that there's a kind of perpetual warfare between science and religion. And history just doesn't prove that. Um, there, there have been skirmishes and serious ones. Galileo, of course, parts of Galileo, we know about that and parts of Darwin, we know about that. But by and large, science has been done at least till the mid 20th century, by and large, by religious believers who saw no, saw no conflict whatsoever between their religious beliefs and their um, and their science. And that gives us some sense, I think, about how how science and religion might be integrated. It's not hard to see in some ways how science might be integrated into religious beliefs. So I, I'll take Christianity here. Um, it seems to me Christians should understand that the earth is 13.4 billion years old or 13.7 billion years old, and that their understanding of creation has to take into account Not everyone. Not everyone needs to think of it this way. But if someone wants to think about it in a really sophisticated way, how did God create the heavens and the earth? Someone ought to try to come to some understanding of Big Bang theory and some fundamental laws of physics, and and that's gonna that's going to be part of somebody's understanding of the doctrine of creation. And the same may be true, or I think it is true, of the origin of humanity. If you want to know how God did it, I think saying that God did it. And that he did it instantly just by speaking it. I think that's just not right. And we know that's not right. So let's, let's integrate what we know about science with um, what we think scripture teaches, for example. Uh, how, how might it go the other way? That's the hard part. How might science integrate? Just, there are a couple 
statements that I make in the book. One is that uh, religion found its home in a in a in the Christian West, where um, there. I guess here's a way to look at it: there are values that science assumes that fit really well with religious belief. That that um, the universe is ultimately simple. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. Science assumes it. Science looks for mathematically simple theories. And if there's a God, if it's a God created universe, we might think the universe is simple. We might think the universe is beautiful. A lot of scientists look for theories that are beautiful. Um, that nature is uniform, that it's not, that it's the same here, you know, there and everywhere throughout the cosmos. What we find on our planet is the same as you would find, uh, you know, a gazillion light years on a planet, a gazillion light years away, that laws are, are the same and they'll be the same in the past and the same in the future. Well, how do you ground those sorts of values? Science just assumes them, but philosophers want to know why, why do we live in a universe like this and a universe that's God created? Um, that provides, I think, some support for those values. It's not, I don't think it's going to help us, any scientists do their daily work any different, but a reflective scientist who, want, who might want to know why, do, why should we prefer simple theories to more complicated ones? There, there's a theistic answer to that question. That's fascinating. I never thought about it that way. And in some ways, maybe this is my bias as a historian, you know, with the sections of the book that really grabbed my attention, um, you know, were the historical ones that where you gave us really rich portraits of some of these these figures, you know, Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, you know, they're sort of the stars, <laughs> little astronomy yeah. humor there. <laughs> they're, they're sort of the stars of, of the story in some way um, of early modern science. Um, I was wondering which of those figures that you wrote about grabbed your attention the most. I mean, not just those ones, but of all the historical figures that you, you talked about. Well, I, I- I find the most fascinating one by far Darwin, um, and um, and he's uh, he's just a fascinating person. Galileo would be my second choice, but um, and Newton was was no slouch. But uh, all the drama around the origin of species, I mean, so it's it's hard for me to imagine that people could get all that excited about whether or not the earth was at the center of the universe or the sun was at the center of the universe. And of course, from our perspective, we don't, it just doesn't bother us that much anymore, but I can still see why people are even still bothered today uh, about finding out that humans might have uh, primate ancestors and that we weren't created, um, you know, out of the dust four to 6,000 years ago. And, you know, origin stories have this kind of existential, bite that other sorts of stories don't have. And, and Darwin knew this and he, he lived at a time when uh, his wife is a devout Christian and he started out as a religious believer. He was, um, he went to um, the university to study, to be a pastor. And um, he was deeply influenced by um, Paley and uh, uh, William Paley was a, very devout Christian thinker about the natural world. And that's how he conceived of the world. And then he had to conceive of it in a new way. And, uh, and I think the way that he had to conceive of it was so different from um, a lot of sciences that came before. And then part of the reason I like it is he saw that this would have implications for um, everything 
for example, how, how human beings think. If our brains were formed through a long evolutionary process and not just, not just sort of God stamped into our, our minds 4,000 years ago, then, then we bear, uh, Darwin says we bear in our frame signs of our evolutionary origins. And I think we do. We have, when I teach class, I say we still carry in us a little lizard brain and, uh, and it makes us very territorial. And we're, if we're hungry, you we don't want to share our food and, um, we can be aggressive, uh, with, uh, mates or, you know, and, we, and we don't, and sometimes it's so powerful, you know, lizards, I think don't care that much about their blood relatives. <laughs> they cared a lot about themselves and well, that's us. That's part of us. Did Darwin, I mean, how, how did Darwin, um, frame then science versus religion, if at all. I think sometimes people are under the impression that Darwin himself thought that he was uncloaking religion. What was it like for him in his period, in his era? Well, there are a couple of things. One, one is he writes privately to people that he sees no contradiction whatsoever between the thing, the things he's writing in religious belief. Uh, the other, the others, he starts off, the first version of the origin of species that has two epigraphs at the beginning and they're both from Christians and they both, and people would have known, I mean, they're not just out and out Christian quotations, but these are, these were, were Christian thinkers who were writing about um, thinking about the world. And I think he deliberately picked those two people um, to say, well, to try to diffuse some of the controversy and in part, cause I, he, well, he, I think he himself tended to agnosticism and maybe even to atheism. I don't think he thought that you were required to believe that but based on anything that he taught. And so uh, I think he wanted to bring everyone along with him on this intellectual journey, not just atheists and agnostics. I think he thought what he had there was, for, was just true and, and um, didn't entail atheism or agnosticism, although in his own case, I think he didn't – I think he just – sort of found his own actually fairly shallow belief kind of withering away mm. uh, course of his life. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, into the 20th century, also the idea that a scientist wouldn't also be, um, you know, forget about being an agnostic, but wouldn't be a priest or a, a pastor or someone of faith. I mean, there was no concept that you couldn't do both at the same time until somewhat recently in, in human history. So maybe that also helps contextualize Darwin's moment. Um, yeah. You also I'll start uh, off with, uh, you know, with the Big Bang, and the Big Bang was discovered with the mathematics of the Big Bang were dis- was discovered by Father Lemaitre. I mean, he turns out to act to a, he was a Belgian priest, and a lot of people didn't like it because they used to think the universe existed forever in exactly the same state it was in, and he said, "Nope, it had a beginning," and and. You know, it was a long time ago, a few billion years ago, but it had a beginning and it's been expanding ever since. And a lot of people didn't like it because they thought, well, this is just a priest telling us that uh, there's a creation story. There's creation using mathematics. and <laughs> That's when, right. And he was and friends when, with Einstein. What's that? He was friends with Einstein, right? Yeah. And Einstein didn't like it at first for those reasons. And then, but Einstein just didn't understand the mathematics. And then finally he. Uh, Einstein uh, went and heard him give a talk on this 
And he gave him a standing ovation and said, this is the most beautiful theory I've ever heard of. So uh, Einstein finally capitulated. But people clearly were suspicious because this guy was a priest. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny to think about the Big Bang as as being seen, um, you know, as being seen as another creation myth put forward by a priest. (laughs) I think probably pretty few people know that. One of the things that you talk about in the book is you reread the Galileo affair, as it were. And that's something that I think a lot of your readers um, and a lot of our listeners, whether or not they know anything about religion and science, are going to have heard of, as you mentioned at the outset of our interview. So how do you how do you interpret that? I mean, how do you write a chapter about something that's so well known and give it your own spin? Um. So, so a lot of the book, I try to, I try to tell stories. I try to communicate with stories and history is full of stories and, uh, that relate to science and religion. So on more modern things, I had to kind of make up some, some stories to get the reader into it, but you don't have to make things. There's so many interesting details in the Galileo story. You don't have to make things up. Unfortunately, almost all of what all of us take to be obviously true about Galileo is probably false. And, um, so part of the storytelling is to to get this the narrative we mostly imbibed, and that is that the church adamantly opposed Galileo solely on biblical grounds, and then uh, persecuted him and hounded him, hounded him into prison. Well, none of that is true. Um, he did live the rest of his life under house arrest, but his he was a pretty wealthy man. He lived in luxury. Um, and he was a loyal son of the church all the way to the very end. His daughter, he was under house arrest. So his daughter went every day to say prayers for him because he couldn't say them for himself in the church. Um, and I think that, you know, Copernicus wrote nearly a hundred years before Galileo, um, and argued that the sun was at the center of our, he thought the universe, they didn't have any idea of a big, huge solar system and hardly any, um, Roman Catholic theologians blinked. Um, and Copernicus was, we're not sure exactly, but probably some sort of cleric uh, as part of the church. And he, he thought he was just understanding the world that God made as best he could. But even when he offered it, we, we tend to think, oh, everyone should have just thought, uh, that's right, the sun is at the center of the universe, not the earth. But all you got to do is go out and look around go out at night and lay down on the ground and look and you don't you don't feel the earth move you see the stars move you see the sun move and you see it all move around the earth and if you um you know if you're not mathematically highly sophisticated it looks like they all move in circles and so the the earth-centered universe fits with what we can see uh, hear touch taste and smell and uh, and thinking that it that the sun that we are moving that the earth is moving at i don't know 680 miles an hour or something like that uh, around its axis and 72,000 miles in orbit uh that that was just bizarre for anyone to to be able to think of and copernicus didn't have um he was partly right but it was really hard to see and the same was true of galileo we didn't know the principle of inertia we didn't have um we didn't know Galileo still thought things might have moved in circles, but um, but now we we know they move in ellipses, and there there are all sorts of things that we just didn't know when he wrote his book. And I think if he if he hadn't done one thing, 
nothing would have happened to him. And the one thing he did in his dialogue concerning two chief world systems, um, there's uh, salviati, which sounds a lot like wisdom, a wise person, and that's the person that has Galileo's sun-centered view. And then there's Simplicius. In the, it's a dialogue, and Simplicius sounds like simpleton or idiot. Well, that was the Pope. And the Pope had been his friend. He insulted the Pope. And I think that was the last straw. I think they're the personal, and, and he insulted lots of people. Galileo evidently was some, was an SOB. And <laughs> he insulted lots of people. And, and people finally said, we're, we're done with it. But, the, but I think the interesting thing is the science would be, it would be another hundred years before the science came in to vindicate Galileo. It wasn't as though the science was really clear. The church just was, uh, you know, that they were uh, uh, simpletons opposing really obvious science. That just wasn't the situation at the time. Right. And you were talking about natural philosophy before, you know, in this, this sense that you observe the world around you and, uh, and that's how you understand the, the creation, right? But that's how you understand the things around you. And as you said, I mean, sitting, lying down on the ground, sitting on the ground, we don't feel that um, intuitively, we don't feel that those theories of Galileo's, for example, are correct. Um, this sort of segues into um, Bacon and uh, Baconian science. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, you know, sort of the, this idea of Scottish common sense and, and the Baconian method. Um, I think that that's something that a lot of people who uh, know a little bit about science in the West have heard of, but maybe don't know very much about. Yeah. So, so I, so I talk about Bacon in a, in a chapter. I mostly try to talk about scientists and Bacon himself wasn't much of a scientist or he's not, but again, there was no big distinction between what we would call a scientist and what might, uh, in you know, in the 14th, 15th century, 16th century might just have been, um, what we would call a philosopher, but someone that just wanted to understand the world in the broadest possible ways. One that might include ethics and uh, it could include theology or the first principles of science or, or science. And, and Bacon really began to think about those first principles. What, what should scientists do? And um, I think the, I think the, so I think one of the biggest impacts that he had was that he, really said we we really need to start doing experiments that's one thing he said we want to and and it, it didn't occur to people it wouldn't occur to you that you could just sort of um you know maybe in a lab create some really artificial conditions and and then get some result or another and not think that they were just the re, they were just some sort of fluky result of the weird conditions you created. There's a big world out there. Just look at that. Right. I think was how people. The book of nature. Yeah. You just had to read that and you didn't have to, I think people, again, now we think it's obvious that scientists should do experiments, but it wasn't obvious and it wasn't obvious how you would set them up. And if you did what, what you got, it just wasn't clear. And it turns out Bacon didn't invent that. Um, that idea was around a, a lot of um, Islamic philosophers we're already doing experiments. Um, and um, so the, but Bacon brought it to the fore 
And it became really important for people to, to think about how to do science. Now, he probably partly was wrong because I think he thought you could just sort of um, get a whole bunch of observations and then from that so kind of simply deduce a natural law. And, uh, the element of creativity in science is really powerful and important and super hard. You can't just look at a bunch of observations and then find some way to pull out the natural law or the theory, the underlying theoretical thing that explains it all. Um, very few scientists are that creative. Um, and it's just, it's super hard to do. And, um, and so we don't really have a, we still don't have a good understanding of creativity in science and the role it plays in helping us understand things. But what happens in that creativity is we end up going sort of beneath or behind things that we can see. And then those things explain what uh, the things we can't see explain the things we, we can like, you know, atoms and electrons or gravity or something like that. We don't see any of those, but they explain things we can see. And they're big creative jumps that explain reality in ways we could never have thought before. And that really goes beyond kind of Baconian, uh, you look, you collect all these things you can see and make some inference, or even common sense. Those really go beyond common sense. Um, and so science, as it sort of digs deeply into the, the kinds of entities that explain or help us to understand what we can see, it's not really very commonsensical. Right. And that common sense idea was back to our sort of book of nature. You look at God's creation and by collecting massive amounts of things, you can come up with sort of an underlying theory. Um, And that fit, at least in the 19th century, as I I understand it from your book, fit quite well with the idea of, you know, the book of nature and the book of scripture, as it were, fit quite well for a lot of Christian scientists, Um, scientists who are Christians. I mean... Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, I think they thought, you know, there were rules for understanding the book of Scripture, and it it especially taught us about the nature of God and the nature of morality and the nature of salvation. And then there were sort of rules for understanding the book of nature, and we needed to figure those out. And, like, mathematics became one of the rules. No one thought that science was going to be so thoroughly mathematical, thinking that that was the language of nature and then applying mathematics to that. Well, that was a really brilliant insight. And, but no one thinks you need to know really high level mathematics to understand the Bible or the Quran. Um, but you could not possibly do 20th century science uh, and not be um, very highly skilled in mathematics. Right. Yeah. But then you can see, I mean, how you're describing it now you can see the way there is that integration or overlap that's possible in the sense of discovering these immutable laws in some sense, whether they're the laws of salvation in scripture or the laws of the book of nature. Um, either way, I mean, you know, scientists who are also Christians thought, saw themselves as on a similar kind of path and both were illuminating the other. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Thanks. So moving to the present then, you note that scientists um, like James Watson, right, or Richard Dawkins, probably the most well-known, um, have said that every scientific discovery makes religion less plausible. Um, effectively, it sets God up as a scientific hypothesis, as you note. Um, 
So according to, to your book, what, what's the problem with that logic? Because you say there's a problem with it. Yeah, well, I don't think that is a scientific hypothesis. And so it's just a weird, uh, I think Dawkins thinks it is, and he tries to argue that it is, and I try to show that it's uh, really highly implausible. Um, but here's the thing, a lot of Christians seem to think it is, and so they offer God as intelligent design theorists or young earth creationists. Um, there are various Christians who treat God as a scientific hypothesis that he's in um, I think God is a metaphysical hypothesis and explains reality in the broadest possible sense, but not not the natural world in the sense that science is trying to understand it. So there's not some um, – we're not going to come to a better understanding of nuclear physics if God becomes um, one of the options. We either accept or reject. It's just not going to factor into the, in, into the equations anywhere. And so I just think it's a kind of a – what philosophers call a category mistake. You're, it's the wrong sort of um, entity to 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 think that to think is relevant to the discussion. And uh, Jerry Coyne just wrote a blog. He's a, a biologist um, and quite a famous University of Chicago biologist, and I think hater of religion. And he wrote a blog about. It was based on a review of my book. The review gets almost everything I say wrong. So he didn't bother. He wasn't a very good scientist. He didn't actually collect any evidence. He just took secondhand uh, everything that this guy said about my book. But the one thing they agreed on was that God is a scientific hypothesis. And uh, I, my guess is if you ask 100 scientists, 99 would say, no, it's not. Richard Dawkins and Watson and and uh, Coyne might say that it is. But most of them would just say it's not. It's just not. They would think it weird that you would think. Um, they wouldn't have thought this 300 years ago. I think people did think God was a scientific hypothesis, but I, I think um, people like Boyle and uh, eventually Newton and Galileo slowly got us to thinking that um, when we're trying to understand the natural world, it's better just not to think of God as a hypothesis. We, we're just not going to, we're never going to think that the appropriate answer is God did it. Um, and that's just a mistake. When we think that, what we're really doing is saying, I don't know. That's what we're saying. And then give science some time. Maybe they will know. Yeah. And the idea that through scientific method, you could ever prove or disprove God also um, simply doesn't work. There's no logic to it, which I think also feeds into to your idea in the book about moving away from this notion of a scientific hypothesis for God, as it were. Um, so two sections of the book that I found really interesting in part because I knew absolutely nothing about them. And I think it also gets at this question about integration were the sections where you talked about neurotheology um, and also evolutionary theology, like, uh, you know, the God's helmet, for example, um, or the God helmet. Maybe I just like that because it's it's from Canada. You know, we, li- we like anything that's exactly. from Canada as Canadians. You don't have to go far to find the God helmet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I was wondering if, uh, you know, you could talk a little bit about the, the first one, this neurotheology, and, and maybe use, tell us about the God helmet as well. <laughs> yeah, you can't. The, so the God helmet is, um, uh, there's a, actually, the, you know why the guy's in Canada, don't you? The, the, the scientist is in Canada because he, in the 60s, he refused to fight in the Vietnam War, so he, he went to Canada, and he's never allowed back into the U.S., which is a shame, but... <laughs> U.S. 
who is uh, <laughs> at Laurentian University in Canada, and he invented the so-called God helmet. It's this helmet that he puts on people that has little electrodes that hook up to people's brains, and then he stimulates some of the neurons in people's brains, and some people have an experience of God. Now, that's that's an interpretation. Some people feel like they feel relaxed and one with everything. Um, so at best, it's a sort of spiritual helmet. Um, that's at best. A uh, Swedish university tried to replicate the God helmet experiments and was unsuccessful. And Richard Dawkins made a pilgrimage to Laurentian University because even though he you know, hates religion, he wanted to see what religious people felt. Maybe that would, maybe he would gain some uh, compassion or some insight into religious believers. So he went to Laurentian and put on the God helmet and he did not have any religious experience. Um, and it looks like the power of suggestion is actually what's, what moves some people to have them and some people don't. Um, mm-hmm. It looks like the God helmet itself doesn't play a, a very big role in it. So, so we should- my advice in the book is, don't buy your don't buy a god helmet yeah. yet. Yeah, we shouldn't all jump on eBay and try to find the god helmet. But it does open yeah. up in the book this really interesting discussion about the rise of this neurotheology that you're talking about, um, and also and also cognitive cognitive science and religion. Could you yeah. speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so I, I say this just so the god helmet's an exaggeration. There are lots of claims that are exaggerations in this area, and. Uh, there are often exaggerations in this area by people who think that they've um, they found the the explanation of the natural explanation of religion, one that undermines or debunks religious belief once and for all. And so, uh, Dean Hamer wrote a book called The God Gene, and he thinks he found the gene that codes for for God. So the only reason we believe in God is because we have this this gene. Well, it turns out we don't have a God gene. There's no such thing. Um, there's no gene that anyone knows of that codes for any belief or behavior. So it's hopelessly exaggerated. And yet it made the cover of time magazine about 10 years ago. So, um, we prefer these exaggerations to the truth sometimes, but this to me is undeniable. Our brains are involved in religious beliefs and practices. And so they mediate all our religious beliefs and practices and cognitive science of religion has figured out what a lot of the mechanisms are that are involved in our religious beliefs and practices. And so, so we know for a fact that, um, that we, we are pretty well uh, primed for religious belief and, and that you're very likely going to find it in virtually every culture at virtually every time of human history, because our brains are so disposed to form religious beliefs. And, um, and all you have to do is look around and you see them. Well, what's, what's the explanation that we see them? Well, part of the explanation is that our minds are naturally disposed to believe in gods. And I say gods in a broad sense. I don't mean Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but, um, pretty powerful disembodied spirits. They have lots of names and they have lots of different other attributes, but, um, but we are inclined to believe in those. And it's pretty natural and easy for us to believe in God. And then here's the other interesting thing. It's pretty unnatural and difficult for us to believe in modern science. So like physics 
is super hard and very uh, counter to our kind of natural belief mechanisms. And so very few people really get physics. Our brains just aren't constructed that way. But God believes pretty easy. Yeah. It's pretty easy to form those. And they're just an extension. Here's the thing. They're, they're probably some sort of extension of our regular person beliefs. So I have a theory of mind that attributes um, properties to you, that you have purposes and intentions and desires. And I think, and I, think I, I know what some of those are sometimes. I can, I can look on your face and know if you're happy or if you're sad. And I, I, just, and I, I form that instantly. Well, it turns out we, we pretty much attribute intentions, beliefs, and desires to pretty much everything like the weather and trees and mountains and rivers and crop patterns. And we're pretty good at finding purpose everywhere and attributing intention to everything. And, um, and well, it doesn't take too long before something like that becomes a sort of powerful independent being on its own. Right. And pretty soon you know, clouds become gods. Um, and that to me, that seems perfectly I think that's right. There are psychological experiments that show this. And what I say in the book is, if I were an atheist, I'd say, oh, so this is why so many people believe in God. And if I were a theist, I'd say, oh, so this is how God made people so that they would acquire beliefs about God. Um, I think it's neutral with respect to whether or not there is a God and whether or not uh, belief in God is rational. And how you look at it probably is going to differ based on your perspective, but people like Dawkins write the God delusion and he thinks he's shown that it, that God is um, some sort of delusion based on this, the psychological urges that we have. Right. And but a theist can has, see it you know, the other way. Yeah. And he hasn't shown that he's just, to me, he's shown to his own satisfaction why there are people that believe differently from, from himself, but he hasn't shown by any principle of logic that, Everyone has to agree with him based on this evidence. Right. So, so speaking of, of um, sort of differences of, of perspective, um, in a different kind of way, you, you decided, as you mentioned at the beginning of our interview, to end the book with two chapters, one on Judaism and one on Islam. So I was curious if you could tell us a bit about what you uncovered, but also what made you decide to to do it that way, to end the book with those two chapters? Um, did you think about integrating them into the larger book, beginning with them? I mean, why that particular format? Yeah. I, did, I did think of writing a more integrated book, but, um, but Jews and Muslims weren't part of the discussion from 1500 to 1900. And so it would have just been a, I would either have had to go back because, um, Muslims, there's the the so-called golden age of Islam, and it it was an intellectual golden age when you when the West was in the so-called dark. I think all these terms are exaggerated, but when the West was in the so-called dark ages, Islam was in their so-called golden age, and there were remarkable scientific accomplishments and achievements by Muslim scholars up until about the 10th century, and then and then that Islam went sort of went. Uh, radio silent for a long time. And, I, and frankly, I think they're still recovering. Um, Muslim majority countries have um, found themselves behind the curve with respect to science and technology. 
Um, so I couldn't write it without having it be really artificial. And the other problem with, with Judaism is um, they were being hounded all over the world. Um, you know, it's, I think it's astounding. I, I think about at least a third of Nobel Prize winners in physics in the 20th century are Jews, and they're a very small population. But you don't hear much about uh, Jews in science um, in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. And so I just couldn't fit them in. It would have been a, it would have been an odd fit. So when all the big things were happening with respect to the scientific revolution and the impacts that had on religion, Jews and Muslims for various sociological reasons weren't included. Um, so that's why I did them at the end. Um, I didn't want it to seem so unnatural. And then I focused mostly on the 20th century. But when I did Judaism, I explained Science needs, uh, in order for people to do science, they need uh, well, they need to not be running around in fear for their lives all the time. It's a leisure activity, really. You need a culture that has a lot of money and allows for people to be educated and then allows for people to just think. And we get that with Jews in the 20th century. We don't get it in the 17th century. And it's to our shame that we don't get it. So I partly explain why. We don't find much, even much discussion of science and religion. Um, we don't find much evidence of it or much discussion of it. And I, I pull a few people out, but they're not Galileo, Newton, and Copernicus. They're people no one's ever heard of. And frankly, they're second rate, really. Right, in that early period. Yeah. So what are some of the differences then and, and similarities that you found when you started comparing um, Muslim scientists and takes on science, Jewish scientists takes on science and Christian ones. Well, so the interesting thing about Judaism is um, um, well, I guess the interesting thing is how secular Jews are. And we, we don't think of uh, I think, so I think there's a closer similarity between Catholicism and Judaism on this regard. I think an, an Irish person in the U.S. who was raised Catholic might even consider themselves Catholic, even if they're, they never go to Mass and they don't really have any Catholic beliefs. They might still consider themselves Catholics, but Protestants probably identify only in terms of beliefs. They wouldn't continue to identify themselves kind of ethnically as Protestant. Um, but Jews, Jewish self-identity you know, it's sort of partly genetic and partly religious. But when we discuss science and religion, we're always talking about the belief part and the relig- the religion part and not the religion part that's that's um, ritual. We're talking about the religion part that's belief. And so um, there's a, so that you find anyway, my point is you find a great higher proportion of Jews who identify as Jews, but don't have religious beliefs. May do the may be have a lot of the ritual practices, uh, or may not, or may not have any of those, and so you get a different lay of the land um, with how how people self-identify, and then what they think are the issues relating to how that how that how their self-understanding of being a Jew might relate to science, um, and. Um, 
what you do find, so what I had to do is identify people, but, you know, conflicts usually come or, or opportunities for integration or separation usually come when people have beliefs and those beliefs contradict scientific beliefs. So what I found among, you know, what we might call serious Orthodox Jewish believers, you find pretty much the same things you find in Christianity. You find, you know, some equivalent of fundamentalists who think, um, the earth is young and God created species distinct, uh, distinctly and individually in a short period of time. And, and then you find others who are, um, I write about the zoo rabbi and he's a great defender of evolution and fitting evolution with Orthodox, um, Jewish belief. And then you find other people that, um, well, you find probably what most people do that most people don't just, they just don't care about it all that much. But Islam was my, sorry, uh, evolution was my test case. And you find people dividing up into rut. When you find, when you can identify that subset of Jewish, um, of self-identified Jews who are religious, who consider themselves religious believers and for whom religion is important, you find something like fundamentalists, you find something like liberals and you find something like people that, sort of in the middle that think they can all be accommodated. So you get the similar sorts of lay of the land. Although yeah, I'd, yeah. Uh, I'd say overall as a group, Jews have been the most successful at thinking that um, evolution presents no problem for religious belief. Mm. Uh, you don't find the same sorts of struggles that you find in Christianity. And I think even more powerfully in Islam. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry we have to we have to call it a, a day, uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for for having taken the time to talk with us. Um, and yeah, it's it's a wonderful book. And also, I should mention for anyone who's listening that it's really written. Although the ideas are are complex and rich, I mean, it really is written for for popular audiences. I would say you don't have to be an expert in either philosophy, religion, or science to get a lot out of this book. So thank you so much. Thank you, Hillary, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. <laughs>